<clears throat> well, good morning again. Quickly to um, kind of uh, recap or, or to review where we are at, we are in the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. He, was, he helped start this church. He preached the gospel, people were saved, and he helped people start the church. And he even had a close enough relationship to the people in that church that he cared about them after the fact, and he even met with the elders after the fact, um, and he wanted to encourage them. And now he's writing to them. The Ephesians, they did not believe in God as a, as a city. Their city, they liked to have worship idols. Uh, they worshiped the goddess of Artemis, so the big statue known as one of the seven wonders of the world. And they made little figurines of this statue and worshipped it and and, and sold them and and made business on on the worship or the idolatry. The church needed encouragement. If that was surrounding you, if everybody around you worshipped this this little fake God, um, you'd want some encouragement. Just like churches today need encouragement uh, as they are surrounded by a world given to the idolatry of self. So they were doing well, but they needed some, they needed to to, to just encouragement, stay the course, stay, watch out for error. And so the beginning, what we've been reviewing since uh, the beginning of this letter is how they got here. Um, How Paul got here, it was by the will of God that he was made an apostle in verse one. It's by the will of God that the church exists. It's by the will of God that people have been saved to to join and become a part of this church. And it's by the will of God that we've seen in our last couple of weeks where we've studied verses 3 through 14 that the Ephesians have all spiritual blessings with the Trinity at work in preserving them and empowering these people for Christian service. We saw the Father at work, we saw the Son at work, and we saw the Holy Spirit at work. And we called that, verse 3 through 14, a eulogy a blessing, a praising of God because he gave them a new destination. And how he did that was through the work of Jesus Christ, his son. And he sealed that work by his spirit so that it would never be undone. And the Christian is wonderfully blessed such that he or she can now praise God, giving him glory for all this tremendous work. That's the ultimate end, right? At the very end of verse 14 as we ended unto the praise of his glory. So we we move now to another major section of chapter 1, or really the other major section of chapter 1, where Paul steps back from this eulogy, this blessings, praising, to speak more directly to the Ephesians themselves. So just as an outline of this, verses 15 through 16 are going to launch us into a prayer. So 15, so, uh, wherefore I also, after I've heard of your faith, so he's speaking to them now, I've heard of your faith and love in the saints, unto all saints, so he, he, he's, these things we're going to speak of shortly. He ceases not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, semicolon, that, and then the prayer is the rest of the chapter. In fact, verses 15 through 23 is one sentence. That's a long sentence. So this whole chapter, or this whole section of the chapter, is Paul saying, I've heard about you, 
And I'm going to pray for you, and here's what my prayer is. And that finishes out the entire chapter. He's gonna, he starts off with he's happy to hear about their faith and love. Then that, that, that's going to launch him into the prayer. Um, and now he's just talked about the fact they have access to all spiritual blessings. So why does he need to pray for them now? Well, uh, John Calvin rightly pointed out that there's at least one important need for this prayer. And that is to avoid complacency. He said, nothing is more dangerous than to be satisfied with that measure of spiritual benefits which has already been attained. We can't just ever say we've arrived and we're done. We don't have to labor anymore. Complacency and apathy are both enemies of the Christian. And therefore, it was, it's necessary that Paul continues to lift them up in prayer. But our goal today is, is to be at the, at the beginning of this in verses 15 and 16 where we're going to see him kind of set the stage for the prayer. And what we're going to talk about are what I'm going to call three dimensions of Christianity. Three dimensions of Christianity. So let's read the verses and then we'll get into it. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So do we know what three dimensions are, right? We have three dimensions in physical space, right? We've got this way, this way, this way. So three dimensions, right? So a little, so if I gave you this, this pretty much two dimensions. There's a really, 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 really thin third dimension. That's pretty much two dimensions, right? Two. Three dimensions, maybe more like this guy. Because now I've got width to it. The Christian life has more than one dimension to it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. There's there's different aspects of our lives that are important in Christianity. Remember, Paul is writing unto saints. Um, And in in verse 15, when he opens here, he says, Wherefore, I also. So he is adding himself now to what really has been a description about God and God's work in verses 3 through 14. He's going to say, well, He's contrasting it a little bit, not saying that there's something different here, but that he is speaking now. So what does Paul see that identifies these Ephesians as saints? And in the Christian life, our three dimensions we're going to talk about is there's a vertical dimension, there's a horizontal dimension, and there's a, there's a dimension in time. And in verse 15, Paul focuses on two of these and he identifies the third when he describes what he did once he heard about them so what are these two dimensions well i'm going to go to the words of our lord in matthew chapter 24 when he was asked what are the two what what's the greatest commandments in the law what's the greatest commandments in the law in matthew chapter 22 and verse 34 it says but the when the pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence. They were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, so we're going to get the lawyer to ask Jesus a question. We're going to try to trip him up. He asked him a question tempting him, right? So he's testing him. He's specifically doing this, not because he wants to know what the answer is. It's because he wants to trip up Jesus. And saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, 
Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So the first dimension that Jesus identified is vertical. The vertical dimension is my relationship to God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. That's my relationship with God. Up and down. The second dimension that our Lord identifies is the horizontal. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The horizontal dimension recognizes our relationship with other individuals in this world. It's side to side. It's who we see when we look around. And so first, let's concentrate on these two dimensions and consider them as Paul writes about what he had heard about the Ephesians. He had heard about the Ephesians and what they had done in two of these, in these two areas. So what did he say? Verse 15 in our text. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Faith in the Lord Jesus. That is a vertical dimension. Given the separation of distance and time, Paul was likely writing this from Rome. Uh, he didn't personally know every, all, everything about the faith of the Ephesians. He, had to, he heard about it. It was told unto him. They had faith in Jesus. What's faith? Belief in something? Uh, what is, uh, it is, it is the, the belief in the veracity of it, the reality of it. Um, it's ascent of the mind to a truth. I'm going to go down to a um, uh, dictionary definition here of, of faith in theology. The ascent of the mind or understanding to the truth of what God has revealed. God revealed Jesus Christ to them and they believed him. They believed in the existence, character, and doctrines of Christ. There's another type of faith, a, a saving faith. The ascent of the mind to the truth of divine revelation on the authority of God's testimony, accompanied with the cordial assent of the will or approbation of the heart, an entire confidence or trust in God's character and declarations, and in the character and doctrines of Christ, with an unreserved surrender of the will to his guidance and dependence on his merits for salvation. Wow, that's a long English sentence and a good one. So they had placed their entire confidence and trust in the Lord Jesus. They believed in the Lord Jesus. They took God at his word about his son. What did Paul do when he went to the Ephesians and he visited them? He, when he first came there, he told them about Jesus. That's what he did. And they believed him. And so this is the vertical dimension, right? They believed in what God had done through Jesus. And there's really only two possible results in the vertical dimension. You either have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or you don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you putting your faith and trust in him for your salvation, for going to heaven, for being forgiven for sin? Or are you putting your faith and trust in something else or nothing at all? In fact, it told us back in verse 12, right back in the eulogy, it said that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Trusting in Christ, believing in Christ, having faith in Christ. That's the vertical dimension. Now, we've given some 
dictionary definitions of what faith is. <clears throat> but what does the Bible say faith is? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So it's a good example for us and for the Ephesians. Have they seen Jesus? No. They haven't seen him physically. We haven't seen Jesus physically. We do not see him physically today. The the Bible tells us we walk by faith and not by sight. So if you see something, then you don't have to have faith in it in terms of placing your trust in something that, that, you know, like, like Christ for salvation. If it was all guaranteed and physically in front of you, you wouldn't necessarily have to have faith. Interestingly, we, w- we will get to the third dimension, which I said is time, in a little bit. But that verse in Hebrews 11.1 1 includes the, the, the next uh, dimension where it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Hope involves something that's not just today. You don't hope for something now. You hope for something in the future, right? You, it's, a, it's a hope puts a time aspect to things, but we'll get to that. Believing in Jesus, believing God, is very important to our relationship with God, to this one, the vertical relationship. Faith is essential to that. A couple verses later in Hebrews 11, it says in verse 6, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. No other way I can do it. So can I, can I make... God are really nice. I can do a bunch of wonderful things and, and bring them to God and say, God, look at all the stuff I did for you. But, you. But, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. He will not be pleased with just your stuff, just your works. He will be pleased with your faith that you took him at his word. He sent you Jesus and you believed in him. I'm going to continue that verse. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We see an example of this at the very beginning of the Bible where Abraham is chosen by God. God says, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Get up and we'll go. And Abraham said, okay, I believe you. And he goes. Just Genesis 15, 5. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou, this is God speaking to Abraham, sorry, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. So you're going to be, your, your seed, your, your children, your offspring is going, your, your, the nation is going to come for you, is going to be as, as, as plenteous um, as the stars. And how did he respond? It said, and he believed in the Lord. And the Lord, and he, counted it to him for righteousness. So God counted righteousness to Abraham because, not because Abraham did something great. Abraham was an idolater. Abraham was not a God worshiper. God spoke to him and he responded. He counted it to him for righteousness, his faith. So faith was the key to Abraham having favor with God. As we've already talked about, faith is the key of salvation. Faith is what initiates 
our spiritual relationship with God. In Acts chapter 16, we see an example of saving faith when, when <clears throat> the Philippian jailer is at, it comes out and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, go get a bunch of stuff and pay us off. No. He said, go and just tell, make the, just do the best effort that you can. No, it said. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house because it doesn't have anything to do with us. It's all about Jesus. Faith is key, though, because we have to believe in him. Faith is a key in salvation. He is also, faith is also a key in what we call justification, our standing before God, that God would look down on us and say, I uh, see you as righteous. I see you as good. How can that happen? Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to say a few more things about faith before we move on. Because remember, in our verse, Paul had heard about the faith they had in the Lord Jesus. Well, is the, Jesus is the key part of that too. It's not just the faith. Faith always has an object. You might see a t-shirt that says, just have faith. We need to just have faith. In what? Like, what's the object? There, 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 we all place our faith in things. Uh, the laws of chemistry, the laws of gravity, uh, a chair, right? You all had faith that the chairs would hold you up today. To just have faith by itself is illogical. It needs an object. So we're looking at what do we need to have faith in for, our, for eternity? The Christian's faith is in Jesus Christ. Well, what about the unbeliever? What about the future for the unbeliever? Like what happens after death when we die? What happens next? Well, some people just don't think about it. They just, I don't worry about that kind of stuff. But some have faith that when they die, nothing's going to happen. So we're just going to go back to the dust. That's a belief. That's a faith. That's a faith in the object of naturalism, of things are just going to continue. There is no God. I can have faith in that. So everyone demonstrates some level of faith. Some are more apathetic about it or kind of like don't think about it very much. But faith is there because if they truly if they truly thought they were going to spend an eternity judged, perhaps they would act differently, but they don't believe that because that's not what they place their faith in, that there's a need for a change. So faith needs an object, but faith also requires humility. Right? If you place your faith in something else for your eternity, or even in the near term, like the car, it will start. Like Raspi yesterday, hanging upside down off the swing set. This bar will hold. Christ will save me. When you do that, you're not in control of the outcome. You can, you can try to control it, but largely you're not. What you've placed your, or what or who you've placed your trust in or your faith in will determine whether it was a well-placed faith. 
You could place your faith in something that just lets you down. So pride and faith don't go well together. I can do it. I can do it all is, is not going to work out. This, so here, here are the words of Satan, the fallen angel Lucifer, when um, he desired his own preeminence. In Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou, Satan, for Lucifer, thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Not much faith. He didn't need much faith to say that. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to be like that. I'm going to be great. I'm going to be awesome. I am going to be the best. I'm going to rely on no one else. But what did, the, what, did, what did the Ephesians do? They had faith in the Lord Jesus. Hebrews 13.8 reminds us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That is the right person to have their faith in. So that's the vertical dimension. Their relationship to God, they had faith in Jesus Christ. And so that was that dimension of their lives taken care of, right? It was done correctly. After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. But then there's the horizontal dimension for the second half of verse 15. And love unto all the saints. This is the horizontal dimension. Me and you. This is how the Ephesians interacted with other saints, other believers, other Christians. And what did they do it? They did love unto all the saints. So, let's begin by defining our terms. Well, what is love? Agape is the word in the Greek, um, which simply means to love. Um, but let's think about it in, in an English definition. It is... The, the, it, Dictionary definition in a general sense to be pleased with, to regard with affection on the account of some qualities which excite pleasing sensations or desires of gratification. To have benevolence or goodwill for. Um, we love whatever gives us pleasure and delight, whether animal or intellectual. And if our hearts are right, we love God above all things. This is the dictionary definition. As the sum of all excellence and all the attributes which can communicate happiness to intelligent beings. In other words, the Christian loves God with the love of complacency in his attributes, the love of benevolence towards the interests of his kingdom, and the love of gratitude for favors received. We love... Other Christians is a demonstration of our horizontal aspect of our Christianity. Love is a way to identify whether that is, or the demonstration of love is a way to identify whether that horizontal relationship of our Christianity is uh, healthy. Christian love flows out of an indwelling Holy Spirit. Why? Because people aren't always lovable, <laughs> right? 
I'm not always lovable. I know that's hard to believe, but I'm not. We love people. It's a different love. It's not like, I love you because, boy, you're going to give me money. Or I love you because of all the nice things you do for me. I love you. Christian love is no matter what. Why? Because I have an example to me of the love of Jesus Christ towards me, who is completely unlovable to him, and he loved me anyways. The Bible tells us we love him because he first loved us. This is a supernatural love. Galatians 5.22 describes to us a list of, of attributes that come from the Christian because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is, first one, love. There's others. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. The first one is love. This is not a natural love. This is a Holy Spirit-driven love. It's not like your love for chocolate or, your, or even necessarily for a love of a spouse or a child. Why? Because the world can demonstrate a type of love towards their spouse or towards their children. We don't, we don't say that the world has no ability to have any kind of love. They don't love in this type of way because they don't know what this type of way is because it, hasn't, it, it, it comes from the Spirit of God. It doesn't come from us. So where do we learn more about this love and, and under, understand what it looks like? Um, and I'm going to turn right now to uh, John's first general epistle, 1 John, which in the Pew Bible is seven, page 1716. <clears throat> 1 John chapter 3. And just to go through a few verses about what love is. Because 1 John is all about, well, is much about love. But it's also all about identifying. How do we know that I am a Christian and how, do I, how can I recognize that in somebody else as well? But First uh, John chapter 3 and verse 14 says, We know that we have passed from death unto life. So we know we have eternal life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death, lives in death, is not etern- does not have eternal life. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. God laid down his life for us in the form of Jesus Christ. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, so you see it, you see someone in need, and it doesn't, drive in you a compassion to help, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Because love in word doesn't help the other person. So without love for fellow Christians, we are not born again. That's what John tells us. Love issues forth in compassion. Love results in compassion, helping fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that are in need. Um, And I'll get beyond just other brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't just stop there. But love that acts, love that doesn't hide falsehood, love that doesn't hide error, love confronts it. If if you continue, um, just in the next chapter, in the same book, 1 John chapter 4, down at verse 7, He talks more about love. Beloved, let us love one another. 
Why? For love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. So this is the positive, right? The other section started with a negative. If you don't love, you're not born of God. Here, if you do love, you are born of God. Pretty simple. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins or the one who would uh, appease the wrath of God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. That spirit within us is what allows us to love. John describes here that our love for our fellow Christian flows out of a love of God that originated in him loving us by sending Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to this world to love us. That's his demonstration of love. And John here relates that love to the giving of the Holy Spirit. And no doubt Christian love involves loving people that do not love us. And it involves loving people that do not love Christ. We know this because of the example that Jesus gave himself, right? He, he, he showed compassion on multitudes. Multitudes turned away from him. He said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. However, the particular love Paul is drawing our attention to here is really the love of other saints. Um, <clears throat> and I turn back, I believe, what was it, 1645 is where our, in Ephesians chapter 1, um, He's talking about our love unto all saints. The saint, the other Christian, is our first priority with this horizontal relationship. And really that horizontal relationship helps show how strong the vertical one is. Galatians 6.10 tells us, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, all men, especially those, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. So John gave us a big description of love, what love looks like. But there's another place where love is uh, largely described, um, and it's back in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is page 1616. This, there's an entire chapter of the Bible about love. Entire chapter. It's a fairly short chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is all about love. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity or love, charity is another word for love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Well, that's weird. We can do a bunch of neat things for God. We can speak, what does it say? Speak with tongues and men of angels. If if you do that without love, you, you sound like a bunch of loud crashing noises that make no sense. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, and though you know you really got it all up here in your brain, and though I have all faith so that I could move mountains and have not charity or love, 
I am nothing. So love is key. And I'm not going to go through the full description. We, we could have an entire lesson just on love, probably a couple weeks on love. But what I do want to draw your attention is to the last verse in that chapter. Because we're going to get back to what we were just studying in, first Corinthians, or in Ephesians. Sorry, we're in 1 Corinthians. Now abideth faith, hope, and charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Paul, to the Ephesians, says, I've noticed your faith. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've noticed your love, your charity towards others. And then hope is the third one, which is going to bring the time aspect in. And that's what we're going to go to next. So we're going to go back to our text. So we had the vertical dimension, our relationship to God, our belief in him, our our taking him in his word, and then our horizontal dimension. How do we treat other Christians? How do we treat other people? We do it out of love, a supernatural love, because only Christians recognize the love that God had shown through Jesus Christ for them and can can act it out because of the spirit. Now we have the temporal dimension called perseverance. Verse 16, Paul says, after he heard of these things, he, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. He doesn't, there's a few other places we'll go where he does identify faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Three different things. The, the vertical, the horizontal, and the temporal. But he does say that he doesn't cease to give thanks for them. And here's an easy one. You know the Greek word. There's a Greek. You want to learn some Greek today, Corin Graham? Do you know any, any Greek words? Ooh. I don't know. So the word here in our Bible that says cease, cease. Like, cease doing that. Stop doing that. The Greek word, pauso. Means pause, right? You, we know that word, right? Pause. So if you pause not... You keep doing it, right? So pause not eating your vegetables, right? Pause not. That would be good. Pause eating your vegetables every day. That would be bad. Cease not, pause not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayer. So what did Paul pause not? Giving thanks and praying for them. He doesn't ever stop, doesn't take a pause in giving thanks and praying for the Ephesians. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about these aspects of giving thanks and praying. But today, I want to concentrate on the, on the cease not, pause not aspect. It's a continuing action. Paul doesn't just say, boy, God, that good, great job with the Ephesians. Thank you. And then that's done. That's it. He continues. Christianity does not stop at your time of salvation. There's a back and forth about the popular phrase, right? Let go and let God. <laughs> no. We don't just stop. We don't just say, well, God, it's all up to you now. I'm not going to do any more. Christianity does not stop, does not pause at the time of salvation. Here's a very similar statement Paul made to another church, the church at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians 1.3. We are bound to get to thank God always for you. 
brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith growing groweth exceedingly, your faith growing exceedingly, there's that dimension, and charity of every one of you toward all, toward each other, aboundeth. So your faith growing exceedingly and your charity aboundeth. So those two dimensions are growing greatly, and he's thanking for God for that always. So this temporal dimension is something that has to be grappled with. Because what happens? What can typically happen? Well, we can get, we can quote unquote, we can get right with God. Or we can help our fellow brother and sister. We have a really great day and we, we feel charitable and we help out. And then something, go, time goes by and it slips. We, go, we grow cold towards God. So the vertical shrinks. We hold a grudge against a brother or sister in Christ and the, and the horizontal shrinks. But let's think back to some of those fruits or the fruit of the spirit that we spoke of. There's some other ones that involve time. Somebody is long-suffering. You can't be long-suffering just once. You can't. Long-suffering involves time. I, I suffer long. Temperance. Mm, self-control. So you might avoid the cookie tray today, but if you had it yesterday and tomorrow, it didn't really, that's not really temperance, right? Temperance involves time, right? If you're going to be temperate in all things, then you've got to do it more than just today. Well, I'm temperate today. Well, that doesn't really work. So this is the time aspect. And Paul's introduction in his letter to the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter 1, talks about this third element. So listen to how closely this sounds like Ephesians. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which ye have unto all saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. There's a reason that these things are good. It's because there's an there, there's a earnest expectation of something in the future. There is a hope that drives these things to be good. How about this one? So that sounded pretty similar. How about 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus. It's not hope in like winning the lottery. It's hope in our Lord Jesus in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. So it's all the same. Every, every time he's speaking of that, it's faith, it's love, it's hope. So what is hope? Well, English, let's go back to our dictionary. A desire of some good accompanied with at least a slight expectation of obtaining it or a belief that it is obtainable. Hope differs from wish and desire in this, that it implies some expectation of obtaining the good desired so hope is not just blind, just blindly. I, I, I you know, like the, the like the lottery. I no, really unlikely. I'm going to win the lottery. One, if I play the lottery, it's really unlikely. Two, I'm not going to play. So probably not going to happen. So hope wouldn't be the right word there. Wish, I don't know. Hope is in something where you have an have an expectation that the, it is going to be fulfilled. The Christian has a desire of good with an expectation of obtaining it. Colossians, uh, from Colossians 5, it is that hope which is laid up in heaven. 
We've talked about in our inheritance that awaits God's children there, given that they are co-heirs with Jesus Christ from their adoption. The Christian awaits what Christ's imputed righteousness has obtained. We are waiting for what he has purchased for us, an eternity in heaven, loving and enjoying our Savior. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. It's not, it's not a hope and, well, we'll see if Jesus comes back. No, he promised to come back. Galatians 5 and verse 5, For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So it involves faith, because you can't see it. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. So we see in that verse again, faith, hope, uh, hope, and love. <laughs> we'll short, we will shortly see in the coming weeks in Paul's prayer to the Ephesians, he, he does talk about hope. Down in verse 18 in our text, or, or just after our text, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling. It is this hope that gives the Christian motivation for the daily Christian experience, which Paul elsewhere likens to a sporting event. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, have you ever run a race, you two? Have you ever run a race? Never? You've run one? Yeah, did you win it? No, I didn't run them either. Um, <laughs> know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but only one receiveth the prize. So, right, we don't, we don't go up to the last place, most places, we don't go up to the last place person and say, here's your prize. No, we go to the first place person. Look, you ran the best. So Paul says, so run that ye may obtain. Like, try, work at it. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. Right? He's talking about like the Olympic Games. They do it to obtain a little crown wreath, you know, a wreath crown. It's just going to rot. It's just you know, bragging rights, something that's not going to really last. But we, an incorruptible. So the, the day-to-day, quote-unquote, battle in the trenches for us is sustained by an earnest expectation of the inheritance that awaits And it doesn't just sustain it, it motivates it. Part of faith in Jesus Christ involves this future hope. Part of this faith in Jesus Christ recognizes his lordship and and our desire, the Christian's desire, to obey him by loving the brethren. And back to verses 3 through 14 of this first chapter, the ultimate goal of these things is the glory of God and his grace. It's not all about us. It's all about him and his glory. So let's close with applications this morning. How do we bring this back to our personal lives? And let's think about the three dimensions. First dimension, the vertical. How is your relationship with God? Have you trusted Christ? Are you born again? We talked about that a few weeks ago. If so, are you maintaining that relationship with prayer? Are you reading the word of God? Are you regularly hearing the word of God preached? Do you know and love him? The relationship with God is more than just, I know that God is. He created the world. He wrote the Bible. He is good. All of these things. It is a love for him. It's a 
You place your affections on things, on him. Uh, Set your affection on things above, the Bible tells us. What about the horizontal dimension? How is your relationship with fellow Christians? And of course, this would assume that you are one. Um, Are you known for self-sacrifice? Are you able to forgive and forget? Remember, we, we sang this this morning. Here is how God remembers our trespasses against him if we are forgiven. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. That's a long ways. Lastly, the time element, the, the hope, the, the temporal dimension. So this is more like, what does your Christian trajectory look like? If you were to plot um, like the stock market, if you're going to look at what the chart of, of the stock prices are for a particular stock, um, what does that trajectory look like? If you were, may not need that every day it goes up. That would be great. But we're human and it doesn't tend to work that way. But what about the, the trend line? Is your, yeah, is your Christian trajectory more Christ-like than a week ago? How about a month ago? How about a year ago? And then what are you using to motivate your race? Are you simply going to just buckle down, willpower, just like a New Year's resolution, I'm just going to do better at being a Christian? (laughs) Or is it because of the hope that Paul is talking to these people about, not only here in Ephesians, but also in the other books, uh, Colossians and and, uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians? Your calling to be a Christian has an expectation. There's a future aspect of it. There's a coming final defeat of Satan and sin. The exaltation of Christ. Glorified bodies for us and an inheritance that awaits us. That should motivate us. That should be the motivator as we seek to continue in things of the Lord. So let's pray.